0: Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Teller,
1: And I'm Shreya. And we're your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world.
0: This week on Q Talks, we are talking to Jeremy O'Hanlon, a Cambridge alumnus who has worked as a corporate attorney in the life sciences and tech industries. He's also held roles in business and corporate development in the life sciences, as he currently does at Gilead Sciences in California. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on the show with us. So to start off with, could you give us a bit about your background and
2: some of the highlights in your career so far, maybe in terms of deals you've worked on? Of course, and thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, yeah, so in, you know, my background, I grew up in rural Ireland in a, a pretty small village of about 500 people. Um, so grew up on a farm there, so fairly uneventful first 17 years, I would say. Uh, I then went to university at University College Dublin. And I studied law and business there. And then shortly after, moved to the United States, so worked in a, a small litigation boutique in Chicago first for a year, and then went to law school in the U.S., so did a, a graduate degree in law at Berkeley. Um, then after that, I joined a Silicon Valley firm called Fenwick & West, so it was pretty cool at the time. Um, they had been working on a lot of the big Silicon Valley M&A deals, so things like Facebook, WhatsApp, or the acquisitions of Instagram and Oculus as well. And so I joined that in 2015, um, ha- had a had a really great time there actually over a few years, got to work on a lot of very cool and exciting deals. We did the largest gaming deal at the time, so a company called Supercell, selling that to Tencent um, and then some, some really cool acquisitions as well, where some of the older blue chip companies in the US were... Uh, really building out their their tech expertise by acquiring some of the newer silicon valley companies so you know we represented GM in their acquisition of Cruise an autonomous vehicle company and then also um Boeing and their or, or rather uh, liquid robotics and their sale to to Boeing um so some really cool deals there and and learned a ton um some fantastic attorneys there that were great mentors to me uh, and then when I was there, I actually got to work on a lot of life sciences transactions as well. Uh, we did things like uh, investments for Merck's Global Health Innovation Fund or uh, Eli Lilly's venture arm. Uh, and then also worked on an IPO for Anaptis Bio, uh, which is a, a really promising biologics company based in San Diego. So really had a fantastic time there. Um, after that, I, I kind of uh, I, t- I kind of determined that I, I'd made a, you know, picked up some really good skills as a, as an attorney, um, and had a good generalist education. But, you know, I determined that for me, it was really going to be, you know, what I wanted to place the emphasis on in terms of my growth was learning about the kind of business and technical or scientific rationale. Um, and and really building out that skill set and knowledge. So, so then I decided to to make a move over to corporate development uh, at Gilead. Um, after taking a brief pause to do a, an MPhil at Cambridge in in biotechnology, uh, and then moved to Gilead in twenty eighteen.
1: That's fascinating and I think it's so great that you um, have had such a broad range of experiences. Uh, As life scientists ourselves, um, I guess that's something that particularly piqued my interest. Um, So I was wondering maybe what have you found to be the standout or surprising differences between uh, the work that you've done with the larger, I guess more general firms um, and then moving into life sciences?
2: Yeah, you know, when I was a corporate lawyer, you, you tend to work on the piece of a transaction way at the end. So, you know, the companies have, have already been through all of the discussions about doing a deal, everything from the the intro to to talking about deal structures and negotiating a lot of the earlier terms. And so you kind of come in right at the end where you're papering the transaction. Um, you know, that's uh, oftentimes it's in large M&A deals, it means that you spend most of your time working on the more exciting part of it right at the end, um, though it does make it very intense. Um, whereas in you know, my current role, um, so the, the team I'm on does a, everything across different transaction types. So we handle all of Gilead's equity investments, we do partnerships and collaborations, and then we do also do the M&A deals. Um, you know, so for us in this role, it's, it's, you start really early. You, you take the first meeting with a company, you know, you get to know their executive team, you work with your scientists to really dig in and understand um, the scientific aspects of, of the companies. And then you take it all through uh, the, you know, the company internally, bringing it to senior management and getting buy-in to do a transaction. So you really see the full life cycle of a deal. Uh, the, the downside to that, of course, is that you work on an awful lot that never really ends up happening. You know, you can take numerous things through from initial discussions to even getting term sheets done. And, you know, it's just deals that never happen or die somewhere along the way for, for one reason or another. Um, but you definitely get to spend a lot more time digging in on the science, as well as thinking about the strategic rationale for the company and doing a strategic transaction versus at a law firm where really your job is to optimize the, the legal side or the structure or the, you know, the economics and the terms for your client. Um, so it's very different, I think, in a, a corporate development type role.
1: Mm, okay. And I think it will be great to get onto the VC aspects a bit later in our discussion. Uh, you, you mentioned corporate development. Uh, maybe you could elaborate on that for myself and for the listeners on what are the sorts of uh, roles that that entails?
2: Yeah, so so as mentioned, um, corporate development. I think it's a it's maybe a term that's a little bit more common in the U.S. and less so in in Europe. But you you could think of um, a corporate development team in a company. Lots of companies do it in different ways, but um, you know at Gilead we will do all of the M and A for Gilead. So yeah, you know, we're responsible for for building the case for executing on the transaction, and likewise we'll do all of the strategic partnerships or collaborations, which are very common in the biopharmaceutical industry. Um, you know, you're partnering up with other smaller biotechs, or even sometimes peer companies around certain assets to develop and um, and commercialize, or even doing research type deals where you might you know, do non dilutive funding, um, or, or maybe even make an equity investment uh, with that to to do some kind of preclinical work or um, or, or do very early stage work. And then at the, the the kind of the the bottom end as well, you have the equity investment. So a lot of biopharmaceutical companies do tend to have separate venture arms, um, Amgen, for instance, AstraZeneca had metamine ventures, um, GSK had SR1, which, which I believe has recently spun out. Um, but at Gilead, we do all of the equity investments through our team. Um, So it's about a team of about 15 of us, and and we handle all of those different transactions. So it's quite cool because we get to see everything across the the range of different transactions and can be quite nimble when we're working with potential partners as well. You know, something that might start out as a a partnership might turn into an M&A deal or or might turn into an equity investment. Uh, And it's quite nice to be able to be nimble like that. So you mentioned that a lot of the deals you do perhaps don't go through for one reason or another.
0: So if we could dive a bit deeper into M&A deals now, why do most M&A deals happen and what's in it for the acquirer and the acquired, for example, in an acquisition? And um, as I asked, like, why might one fall through? What are the common reasons for it not quite working out?
2: Yeah, um, I think, you know, there there are a lot of different reasons why companies might do an M&A deal. Um, it might be to acquire strategically important technology, uh, it might be to grow revenues, um, so you know, inorganic growth of the business, um, or it might be to diversify your business units or geographies. Uh, Gilead more recently went through a, a big phase of diversifying from being what was you know, largely a pure play infectious diseases company to building out in um, oncology and, and autoimmune disease. You also might do it to obtain talent. So aqua hires are something that's very common in the technology industry. And there, you're really interested in acquiring the kind of founding team and their staff, um, especially you know if it if it's a good team of engineers where engineering talent is is quite difficult to come by. Um, so those are those are some of the reasons. You know, there are also also sometimes companies do things for defensive reasons. So it may be a, a smaller company that has the potential to be a competitor in the future, or it may be a key supplier or or a company that you don't want falling into to a competitor's hands. Um, you know, in terms of why they might fall through, you know, I guess if we if we think about things falling through, but before you actually even sign the the agreement, um, that you know often just has to do with everything to do with the, the negotiation of the deal. Um, so there are certainly things that that mean that during negotiations deals can fall apart if the parties just can't really have a meeting of the minds with respect to the economics or or how things will work. You know, a lot of times you know you'll do your initial term sheet around a transaction um and people you know that that is uh you know the function of that is to to broadly um put down the high level terms but when you get into really going through an agreement um things can pop up and it is possible the parties just can't see eye to eye on that uh, and then likewise you know deals can fall apart after you actually sign the the agreement as well uh, and there you know with with certainly with larger MA deals they'll be subject to Antitrust or foreign direct investment um, regulation, and so it's possible that a regulator somewhere um, might determine that they they don't want to approve the transaction, and you know we've we've seen that quite a bit in the past, and that can also sometimes really hold up deals. So Roche's acquisition of Spark, for example, um, was held up for for quite a while. Um, so yeah, those are those are some of the key reasons.
1: Perhaps to whet our appetite for deals that have gone through. Are you able to tell us about a recent acquisition that Gilead Sciences has made that you were a part of, uh, and particularly what made it a good deal, what made it so attractive, um, and obviously a- one that you're able to share with us publicly?
2: Yeah, of course. Um yeah, I think you know we did. While M and A was kind of slow to start in twenty um, <clears> twenty, <throat> towards you know with the with the pandemic and um, it being difficult to do proper diligence and uh, the, the the markets being somewhat uncertain, things did pick up a lot in the second half. Um, we did two pretty substantial deals. So the, the first was our acquisition of um, which is a, a company that has a, a extremely promising. Um, ADC drug for, for oncology. Um, so, I mean, I think that's that's a really great acquisition for Gilead because it provided a rare opportunity to get access to a commercial stage oncology drug that has potential across a broad range of different tumor types. So, uh, you know, acquiring oncology companies has become extremely competitive as a lot of the biopharma companies in the in, in recent years have really decided to focus on that area. And um, for us, that was a, a really great opportunity to add this commercial asset, as well as a, a really large organization of talented people in the Aminomedics team um, to the Gilead organization. So that was a great one for us. We also signed the acquisition of Mir Pharmaceuticals in December. Um, so there, that is a, a company that has developed a drug for Delta virus. And uh, it's actually a Europe-based company. They're they're based in Germany. It was uh, IP that spun out of the University of Heidelberg. And they've developed a a really fantastic treatment for the treat, a really fantastic drug for the treatment of Delta virus. And um, Delta virus is a really severe form of viral hepatitis that until this point had no treatment available. Patients would take off label interferon, um, which is a very old uh, drug used for infectious diseases that has a, a pretty unfavorable. Safety profile and um, really doesn't have great efficacy, so that's you know was another great opportunity for us to get a commercial stage asset. It had recently been approved in Europe, um, and then you know assuming we close that transaction, we're currently in the regulatory review period. There, um, we'll go ahead and launch in the US and globally. So we're really excited about bringing that that drug Hepcludex to patients in need around the world. That
0: sounds wonderful, and. More generally, I presume these deals were already in the motions before COVID 19. But do you think in the life sciences, the pandemic is going to significantly alter the types of MA deals we see?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned there, you know, the in 2020, the pandemic really did uh, slow MA transactions. So, uh, you know, at the beginning, there was a lot of uncertainty in the markets. And, um, Whereas people would, you know, do a lot of in-person meetings, and you, you know, you would certainly be on-site doing diligence ahead of acquiring a company. Um, that you know that it made things very difficult with the pandemic. However, after a while, as as kind of markets became steady, and biopharmaceutical markets in particular, you know, biopharma companies and biotechnology um, really rose quite rapidly after the initial dip in March. Um, with the the um, improved investor interest in the sector. And um, companies started looking at doing M&A deals again. I think people had acclimated to uh, <laughs> doing diligence over Zoom and management meetings over Zoom as well. And I think people still made the effort to to do, a, you know, at least a few in-person meetings in, in a safe way. Um, but, you know, I think the, the industry did shift a lot to doing partnerships and collaborations. So the kind of deal structures that, would allow, let's say, a large biopharma company to get an option over a drug in development and and another biotechnology company's pipeline. Uh, Those those are really uh, popular in 2020 um, as a result of the shift in focus. And uh, I think actually large partnership or collaboration deals, so deals that would be over 100 million up front, um, those doubled uh, over 2019. So uh, it was really a big year for partnerships and collaborations, and those are the kind of transactions that can can actually be quite huge and uh, you know larger than some M and A deals. Um, Gilead itself, we did a, a really large one in 2019 with Galapagos, which is a, a Europe based biotechnology company, uh, and we we invested five billion in Galapagos, so a billion dollars in in equity and investment, uh, and then four billion uh, in non dilutive research funding in exchange for. Uh, rights to anything that comes out of their pipeline for the next 10 years outside of Europe. So large biopharma really started to kind of favor those deals. But I think there has been a rebound in M&A. And towards the end of the year, as I said, you know, Gilead was active with 2 MA deals. And then we also saw the largest M&A deal uh, in, in the industry of 2020 uh, in December when AstraZeneca, UK-based um, biopharmaceutical company, of course, acquired Alexion Pharmaceuticals in the US.
0: Great. That's a really great perspective on the outlook for the biopharmaceuticals industry. And actually, just to ask a bit of a weird question, you've told us a lot about the economics and the financing of deals and how that's one reason why deals may not always go through. So the football club in the UK, Burnley, was recently taken over and acquired, but most of that was using debt. And that drew a lot of scrutiny from supporters in the press. So, you know, just not necessarily in football, but more generally, why might people buy a company lever- leveraging debt? And does it
2: often work out? Does it make sense? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, certainly not a, an expert on uh, football MA, though I'm sure it's a very interesting field. Um, I could imagine there it might have been that fans were unhappy with. Uh, the club that they loved taking on debt and potentially putting its future at risk, um, just speculating. But yeah, I think, you know, debt is a very, uh, reasonable thing to use in a transaction. Um, you know, companies could use it for a number of different reasons. You know, one is that uh, oftentimes companies want to do acquisitions that, um, are, are more expensive than the amount of cash they have on their balance sheet. So they need to take on some debt in order to do the acquisition. Um, you know, we, we've done that in the past, Um, For example, when we did do our Immunomedics deal, we we did issue some some debt as well, some bonds, um, and that's commonly done. And particularly, I think, when uh, financing is cheap. So when interest rates are low, it's quite attractive. There are also tax benefits to using debt. and then, of course, the private equity industry is is built on leveraged buyouts or, you know, taking uh, you know a certain amount of money in, in equity investment into a fund from limited partners and then levering that up to be able to acquire larger or more companies. So, um, I mean, it's, it's certainly something that's a, a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, but there are, of course, instances where companies can become overburdened with debt as a As a result of um, transactions and and you know things there, there can be a negative outcome,
1: so we've been talking a fair amount about about m a deals, and something that I think we haven't touched on yet is you've got quite a significant background in in law and the legal aspects and then moving into uh, your role as corporate development in Gilead sciences, uh, what has been your experience of how their legal background might have helped you and also where you might have you might feel that you actually lack some of the skills that others um that others have
2: Yeah, I think the the legal skills were were really helpful actually and I find that uh, you know I find that uh, the, the most common I think um background that's often recruited into these types of roles at least in the US is former investment bankers uh, and the 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 skill set that I've Built is is quite a bit different to that, so I find that some of my colleagues have really fantastic financial analysis skills, um, but might have had less exposure to the kind of contract negotiation side of things. And that's somewhere where I've had a bit more exposure based on my background. So it's it's quite nice. I think we have very complementary skill sets. Um, but yeah, you know, the to actually do a transaction at the end of the day, you do need to negotiate an agreement. Um, as well as structure and agreement. And particularly, as I mentioned, in biopharma, where companies do a lot of these structured type deals, like the Galapagos one I mentioned that Gilead did in 2019, um, kind of a knowledge of how you can structure things and think creatively is is really important. And I think my background in law is really helpful there. Um, I, I think aside from that, I think just getting experience on executing transactions was really great. So I think we. You know, in in my few years at the law firm, I probably executed over twenty different transactions, and that just you know it's 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 kind of like doing reps. Um, you, you know, the the more you do it, the the easier it, it gets. Um, still, you know, very challenging and intense, but uh, you you kind of develop a a. Um, Ability to deal with things coming up last minute, uh, to manage the stress, and and also to kind of uh, work with stakeholders across different functions. and I think that's a, a really great skill that um, that I built in in law.
1: So to follow up on that, what which members of the team or what skill sets do you seek out at each stage of the deal flow?
2: Yeah, good question. I mean, I think earlier on, it is it's fairly scientific focused um for most deals uh, so i think there it's really about having you know you don't need to be a complete expert um, you know we do have some phds on our team so we have some former scientists who are on our team and they're always great to speak to um, because they understand the kind of strategic and business side of things in addition to the science side but oftentimes you know we pair with our colleagues in the RD organization so um, be that you know, lead lead clinicians or scientists to really kind of get under the hood when we're looking at a company and understand it. So, you know, I think first, you know, you need to look at it in the strategic lens of is something kind of in scope for us when we look at a company And then you need to work with the the technical talent um, with our R&D colleagues to really understand the technical aspects of a program or a company. You know, if they're developing a small molecule, for example, if the characteristics of that small molecule are competitive versus others out there that are in development. Um, And then I think as as you go through, so if you get past that kind of technical stage and determine it's something you're interested in, um, then it can become a little bit more of a, you know, depending on the stage of the asset. Certainly, if it's a later stage asset, it it does become a little bit more of a, a modeling exercise. So uh, understanding um, what the potential markets are for something and modeling out a valuation. And we often work with investment banks on so in that piece as well for larger transactions. So um, we'll have uh, investment banks support us um, most recently on the, on the, on the mere transaction. Uh, Goldman Sachs was the advisor, so it worked very closely with them in doing the deal. Uh, and then I think um, as you get later and you get to actually doing the deal, you, you get into the negotiation of the agreement. So I think that's where the legal skill set becomes very important. So it is kind of a, a mix of a, a scientific uh, finance accounting-type skill set and then legal skill set or, or contracting skill set. Um, that is is really the kind of three key pillars of our job, I would say. Just
0: to follow up on that, so would you say within your team and with others working corporate development, is it more of a generalist skill set? Is it a case where you all take on certain stages of the deal, but you're all fundamentally doing similar
2: work, and you know no one has their niche per se? Yeah, um, I think it's it's more so that uh people come to the team with different backgrounds and uh, of course that when when i think you know when time is limited and you really need a, an an expert in an area people will be staffed on deals appropriately but the goal of development on the team i think is to grow everyone into a good generalist so like i said everyone has their their strengths um in their background behind the the legal side some of my colleagues in the finance and modeling side and and then some others in the phd or science side And I think the the goal is to build everyone up to a a good generalist skill set. So to make sure that those people with a scientific background. I'm um, learning the contracting and finance side of things, you know, for me, learning the science and finance side of things, or for um, the colleagues with with more finance type background, the, the science and legal or contracting side of things. Um, but certainly we do often pair up on deals. So I think the most common thing to, is to have at least two people on a deal, uh, sometimes more if it, it's very big. And I think oftentimes you will try and pair people based on their on their skill set and background. Um, so it, it is it is a really great way to learn from colleagues as well. And um, by having people with such great specialty skill sets, you you kind of uh, help each other achieve that goal of becoming good generalists.
1: So if we perhaps move towards discussing VC or venture capital more generally, we've got quite a few listeners who are considering various career options, um, one of them being working in VC. So I think we'd all be interested to know, what is something that's perhaps surprised you, especially about about the VC sector?
2: Something that surprised me, I guess, you know, maybe one thing and, and probably something I, I realized quite early on, um, but might be more appropriate for student's listening podcast is, I guess, the kind of goals of VC. Um, <laughs> maybe I was naive when I was younger and saw VC about futurism and um, building up a lot of these companies. And, and it, it largely can be. But I think what's often forgotten is that venture capital firms do have a time horizon and pressure to invest the money they raise from their limited partners. So obviously VCs will go out and raise a pot of money from institutional investors like pension funds or, retire- or um, insurance companies, uh, insurance funds. And, you know, they, they are, those funds are often raised um, on a 10-year uh, time horizon. And so there's pressure to deploy capital. And then there's also pressure to exit at some point. So it can be the case that the, that interests are not necessarily always aligned. And um, VCs, while I'm, I've met many fantastic VCs who really do like building companies, they are also responsible to their LPs. So that can kind of change priorities and and can force a focus on um, getting to an exit, be it it via a sale or um, via uh, floating through an IPO. And just to bring it
0: back to COVID, because I mean, nowadays, that's the (laughs) the focus on everything. Um, What do you think about the idea that recessions, like the one we find ourselves in, um, are good for VC in a way because weaker companies
2: are weeded out? <laughs> uh, I suppose, you know, to the extent that a company would have failed eventually um, and the the recession accelerates its failing. And as a result of that, a VC might have, you know, not done the next round and invested money that would have ultimately uh, not produced a return. I, I think that's probably a, a great result for the VC. Um, but to the extent the recession is the reason that, a company that might otherwise have been acquired or been able to to do an IPO isn't able to do that. Uh, and like I talked about, you know, VCs from a financial perspective are incentivized by getting to that exit opportunity through the the, the um, an acquisition or or an IPO. So to the extent that a recession is the reason that doesn't happen, I'd say that's a pretty bad outcome for the VC. And does that pressure to exit
0: influence you know the kind of areas VCs invest in? So you know, for example you know, historically, maybe there are more opportunities in um, companies involved in less ethical industries and, you know, maybe more forward-looking companies miss out because of that. Uh, So for example, um, when we're talking in terms of climate change, um, do you think, you know, something like that would have an effect, that pressure on VCs would
2: prevent them from um, investing in more futuristic companies? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I think for, for VC firms, if they if they think it's not going to be possible to get a company um, to the point where they've really built a lot of value within their time horizon, then it, it, it will be difficult. I think, you know, lots of investors are pretty good about looking to the future. And even if you think about biotech, um, biotech, a lot of biotech companies that are even public, they, they don't really trade on the basis of anything that they have at the moment in terms of a business or revenues, but it really provides investors like an optionality on on a potential future return. so you know there are lots of biotech companies that are public and and many biotech companies go public before they they have any revenues whatsoever. It's probably the more common thing. Um, and really for for investors who invest in those companies, it's about they have some promising science in the pipeline. Um, they know it's going to require a lot of investment, um, but there is a long time horizon and yeah, you know, part of the reason for biotech companies going public early, I think is that that rationale that you know you, they need to raise large amounts of capital and the the VC time horizon might not. Necessarily suit. and so by going out to the public markets, they're able to raise very large amounts of capital in very short time, uh, short turnaround times through secondary offerings, for example. And um, the public investors will will invest for for the future and invest in the kind of optionality of the a potential outsized return.
1: Taking this on a slight tangent, do do you have a favorite funding round to work on, um, and? If so why so for example seed series A series B.
2: I guess they I guess they kind of all provide different um, different things. I think I'm probably more interested in in what the company is rather than the stage. Um, you know I, I would say doing doing seed or earlier stage stuff can be quite interesting because you're you're getting very close to the kind of um, the founders and learning about their vision and it's a much smaller company at that time. Um, so that's quite interesting, uh, you know, in, I guess at the beginning of 2020, um, I got to work on a really cool transaction where we worked with some top tier biotech VCs to, um, kind of start off a company called Kyverna, um, which is working on cell therapy for autoimmune disease. So it was very cool, um, getting to be involved at the beginning of that. Um, and, and, you know, as we watched the company grow, it'll be, it'll be really interesting, but I think, you know, those are those are often, you know, smaller amounts of capital. Um, and then I think at the other end, the Galapagos deal I mentioned was was very exciting to be doing a, a deployment of a billion dollars in capital into a company that has, you know, a, a pretty large organization is really far along, um, has has products in the pipeline and, and near commercial. So, yeah, very, very, very different. But I have enjoyed in my role getting the opportunity to get exposure to uh, kind of all different types. So to answer your question, I guess no, but uh, but they they definitely do differ, and it, it's nice to get uh, um, experience doing the different types. And I think some people do find that they, you know, might be more interested in growth equity or might be more interested in seed funding.
1: A very diplomatic answer to my question. <laughs> um, so if uh, perhaps we can ask you one final question um, and we like to keep it lighthearted. So we're interested to know if you could acquire any company, literally any company, what would it be?
2: It might be a bit boring, but I, I do really like music a lot. So I think for me, you know, had i never gone down the the life sciences side of things, working in the music industry would have been very cool. Um, I used to play in bands a lot growing up when when I was a teenager. I was a drummer and a guitarist and even here now um, in L.A. where I currently live, have uh, piano and guitars kind of hanging around. So I think for me, acquiring a a record label um, would be really exciting and a lot of fun.
1: Fantastic! Um, we learned definitely learned something new about you uh, today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Q Talks, Jeremy. It's been fantastic to talk to you.
2: Really nice to speak to you both as well, and thanks so much for having me on. So, one thing I found really interesting
0: was how he transitioned from a legal to a non-legal role within the corporate world, and was able to apply the skills from his earlier roles um, to his non-legal roles. And I think that gives a lot of hope for people that their degrees don't necessarily have a straightforward path and they can find themselves working in lots of interesting areas later on.
1: Definitely, definitely. And something that stood out to me were the numerous very interesting deals that he talked about and mentioned. I think it just really showed showed me the r- interesting moves that are happening in biotech at the moment and the potential for working in these sorts of companies and how much exposure to the deals that, that you get. So I, I personally found that really interesting.
0: Thanks very much to Jeremy for joining us on Q Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech who have all been working hard behind the scenes.
1: Thank you very much for listening, and please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at qtech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.